Well, let's take our Bible today, and we want to turn to Matthew chapter 15. Been a series of messages through Matthew, and we've really been specifically uh, defining moments is the title of the mess- title of the series. Defining moments, standing at the crossroads. And so, when we think about defining moments, we said that in the in times past in this series, we said that you come to struggles in life, you go through different things in life, different adversities, and it really reveals the greatest fears of your life. And then the fears of your heart bring doubts in your life, doubting God. But we said that doubt's not bad. Doubt's a part of faith as long as it results in still taking action that God wants you to take. Those doubts lead to faith. But I've discovered, not only in the Bible, but in my own personal life, that defining moments often come to us during times of really a crisis of faith in our life. I remember back before I became a believer, my niece, my, my sister was older than me. She had already been married. She'd already uh, had a um, first baby, only a few months old, much like some of these young ones here this morning during their parent-child dedication time. I didn't have any children of my own. I was only about 15, maybe not quite 16 at the time. Wasn't married, didn't have any children. So I, I sort of looked at her as um, her daughter, uh, little Tammy, as my own. And only a few months old, there was a panic one night that hit our home. And my sister and brother-in-law who lived next door to us came over and my little niece had turned blue and running out very high fever. And it turns out she was suffering from spinal meningitis. They put her in a tub, put ice in the tub, trying to get her fever down so they could get her to the hospital. I didn't, have, I didn't know what to do. I couldn't even get to the tub. Couldn't really help it anyway. So I went to my room and I really began to pray. I can't remember any time in my life before that that I really got down on my knees and really just started crying out to God, but I did that night. And at the end of it, the fever went down and she is, was responsive and she's living today. She's married today and, uh, and, and living a good life. And so you think to yourself, well, you know, you weren't even a believer and you prayed. We'll come back to that in just a minute. But at that time, that crisis moment of my, my life, suddenly it became a defining moment because then I re- realized that God really did care about me, that he cared enough about me to answer my prayer. Now, you may be arguing with me since I was not a believer that God answered somebody else's prayer. And that may have been, but we were not really a believing family at the time. And so I don't know who you, you would have picked out from that. My only thing is that it became a crisis of faith in my life, and I realized something about God that I'd never realized before, and just a few months later, I prayed to receive Christ and give Jesus Christ my heart. The times of crisis often bring about the defining moments to our life. We look in the Bible this morning at Matthew chapter 15 about a woman, and you say, well, man, this is Father's Day, and you're preaching about a mom. I know, we're all confused here, you know? We, we used to do baby dedication on Mother's Day. We did it on Father's Day. Now it's Father's Day, and I'm preaching about a mom. But we're going through the book of Matthew, and this is the passage that it hits on this morning and where God has led us. But I do have a, uh, a Father's Day story at the end of the message that I'll share with you, kind of balance things out a little bit, all right? But in Matthew chapter 15, we read, beginning in verse 21, here in the crisis of faith, and Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, O son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. 
But he did not answer her a word. Silence. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away, for he is crying out, she is crying out after us. He answered, I, sent, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And Jesus answered her, her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Wow, what a bizarre passage. Really, it is. It is difficult to read it without really an explanation to say, now, wait a minute. Jesus was silent. Jesus called her a dog. Well, this doesn't sound like the compassionate, loving, merciful, gracious God that, that I know and that I, I read from the scripture. Well, we have some questions there that we need to answer. But I want us to look, more importantly this morning, at the faith that this woman had. Because in the Bible, here, in just in these few chapters, here's what it says. There's four different types of faith, really, as we read through the last couple of chapters. One, there was the faith that was in unbelief. They just turned to unbelief. That was the Jewish faith of many, uh, of many of the Jews. And then you have saving faith and saving to get healed, whether physically or spiritually. Then you have little faith. Remember when Jesus was walking on the water and Peter came after him and began to sink when he took his eyes off Jesus, Jesus said, oh, you of little faith. Now that was a disciple. Now we have this woman coming along and he's saying, you have great faith. And so what made her faith so great? Well, I want us to look at faith struggles. Then I want us to look, secondly this morning, at faith's testing, and thirdly, faith's victory. First of all, look at the struggles behind this faith. In chapter 15, beginning in verse 21, Jesus had just come out of talking to the Pharisees and, and talking about traditions and washing of the hands and all the traditions that the Jewish people had going into the, uh, the temple worship. Then he comes out, it says this, and Jesus went away from there to Tyre and Sidon. Now, why is that important? Well, this is the only recorded place in the gospels where we find that Jesus is going out of what we would refer to today as the Holy Land, out of Israel. And he was going there, we can only presume for some rest. If you recall back in chapter 14, when he walked on the water, he sent the, the uh, disciples out on the Sea of Galilee, and he said, I'm gonna meet you on the other side. And when he did that, the Bible says he got him away from the crowds. It was believed by now that about 25,000 people following Jesus around, around, uh, in the, uh, around the Galilean area. And so he's, he's getting away because he just needs some time to pray, he needs some time alone, needs some time to rejuvenate himself and recharge his batteries. Well, lo and behold, he doesn't get that chance. Behold a Canaanite woman. Now, why was this important? A Canaanite was a Gentile, and so she was an outsider. She was even more the outsider because she was a Canaanite. If you recall, in the Old Testament, when the Israelites came in uh, back into the Holy Land to reclaim their land, it's called the land of Canaan. It was the land that they retook from the Canaanites. And so, generally speaking, these were enemies of Israel all throughout the Bible. And so not only is she an outsider because she's a Gentile, and the Gentiles were called dogs by Jews, but also she was also, I mean, my goodness, a Canaanite of all things. Now, notice, however, 
what she says. And behold, a Canaanite woman came from the region, came out and crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Now, evidently, she knew something about the Christian life or the, the life of the Jewish life, I should say. Call him son of David. Jewish people did that. People in the land of Canaan maybe would not necessarily call him that or realize that he's referred to as the son of David. So she knows something. She's been involved in it a little bit before uh, as far as the knowledge of God. But here we find that this woman coming to him because of her daughter. He says, it says in the Bible that she was oppressed by a demon and she was desperate. She began to beg him to do something about her daughter. Now, your parent, some of you that are parents today, many of you are, know that we would just about do anything for our kids, right? I mean, we would. This one was desperate. She was shouting out. She was in the crowd. Didn't care who embarrassed her. Uh, there was a television show <clears throat> recently on. It was so good, it was canceled after one season, you know? And it's called The Enemy Within. Anybody ever saw that show? Ever seen it? Or maybe a commercial. That's why it was canceled. Nobody was watching but me, I guess. <laughs> Pam and I don't watch a lot of television except for, you know, of course, golf and ball and Lifetime movies. You know, those things, important things, you know, I guess. But this one show, this lady, I, I was curious because I kept seeing, I saw this commercial a couple of times. And what happened to start the show off? She was the deputy director, supposedly, of the CIA. And so she got a call one day from the principal of her daughter's school and said, your daughter's not in school. And so she runs home, sensing something's wrong. She runs home, finds the, a telephone, her daughter's telephone, cell phone, on the steps. She picks it up, and there's a call came for her. And it was a terrorist whom she had ruined his plans. And he showed her a picture of her daughter skipping school, but on a park bench. He said, in five seconds, I'm going to kill your daughter unless you tell me the names of the four agents that ruined my plan. Five, four, three, two, one. That's it. That's it. That's all the time you have to think. No reasoning, no going back and forth. Five seconds. Five, four, three, two, one. She blurted out all four names at one. Well, the CIA agents were killed. I know it's a tragic story, but it's just fictitious, folks. Don't, you know, stay with me here, okay? And then she was arrested. And near the end of the, the season, one lady, one congress, congresswoman, Figured it out. She said, you'd do anything for your kids. I, I know why you got trapped in that. Because you'd do anything for your children. This woman was going through suffering. She was going through, her daughter was going through some demonization as well. Now, I know we don't like to talk about that, but we keep coming back to that in the gospel. You cannot preach through any, any four of the gospels without coming to this. And the fact that we are in spiritual warfare in this life. Listen, 2 Corinthians 10 says this. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to the destruction of strongholds. And it says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to Christ. It also says in 2 Corinthians, in their case, the God of this world, meaning Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. And so we've already discovered in Matthew 13 that the, Satan has the power to take the word of God out of your heart when you don't receive it. Now he can blind the mind of those who won't receive it 
And we also understand that after we become a believer, there's constant warfare going on. Jesus was tempted three times in the garden, or rather in the wilderness, and it's evident to us that that's not the last time he was tempted. Always going through this kind of spiritual warfare in life. So we're up against suffering. We're up against spiritual warfare. And just like this woman, we cry out, God, where are you? Where are you? As the psalmist says, my my tears have been my food day and night, and they cry out to me all night long, where is your God? And you and I are also just like, I guess, every other culture that's ever lived, but more so today, that we're wanting something instant. We're unwilling to wait, and we're we're not really conditioned to wait. That's why I think the movies that are out today, uh, the Avengers, you know, with the the glove, with the... uh, six infinity stones on it, snap your fingers and it'll be done right then. That's what, that's what we want from God. And there's nothing wrong with wanting it that way. We're just human, we, we want it that way. Aladdin just came out. Hey, rub the, rub the lamp, three wishes come out. Man, I wish I had three wishes. You know, genie comes out, get three wishes. Well, maybe four, maybe five. Well, I mean, what would they be? What would those wishes be? Boom, it just happened all of a sudden. And we struggle with that. And the the problem is, our greatest struggle sometimes as believers, and even as non-believers, is that we struggle with God. I mean, we we don't think we're struggling with Satan, we don't even think about that, but he's supposed to hate us, right? And the people around us are always trying to get ahead of us. We kind of understand that. We understand the natural things of life, how, you know, catastrophes happen, but God, he's supposed to be our friend. He's supposed to be right there in our corner. And we struggle with that. But it's the struggle with that that brings us to real defining moments in our life. So secondly, not only do we see the struggles, but then I want you to see in this passage that we see a testing. In verse 23, but he did not answer her a word. Ever felt like God was silent with you? That he was hiding somewhere? Thank God he's sort of like my grandchildren when they go to hide, you know, they they talk all the time while they're hiding, you know? And, and they, you know, if I, if I were to say to them, well, I wonder where you are, they'll say, right here, you know. It's almost like God is hiding, but he's letting us know where he is. But here we find God is silent, and he was testing her. How bad do you want this? He said, well, why should God test, test my faith? Well, how do you know you have it if it's not tested? How do you know that you're your level of intelligence unless it's tested. How do you know if something is strong, a motor works, if something is strong enough unless you test it? And God is about stretching our faith like a balloon that you stretch and stretch before you blow it up. It it begins to relax. The sun is coming down now on the wax and it's getting softer and softer and softer through those trials. God brings about those things in our life to do something with our faith. Now, notice what it says here. It says in verse 23, he did not speak with her a word. His disciples came and begged him saying, send her away for she is crying out after us. It was over and over and over again. Now, the disciples were gathered around Jesus. I'm assuming that if if we were to look at every other passage here in the book of Matthew, people were gathered around all over him. They'd heard about Jesus. And the crowds were beginning to gather, more and more people. And she was shouting above the crowd. Like, I don't care who hears me. I'm desperate. I don't care if people see me at the altar crying. 
in a church service. I'm desperate. I don't care if my hair gets wet during baptism. I'm, I'm desperate. I don't care if I come forward in a service. I'm desperate. She was, I don't care who hears me be crying out to God. I'm desperate. But, G, but the disciples said, send her away. Now, we don't know about the disciples' hearts. It doesn't really indicate to us here in this passage whether they're saying, hey, look, you know this lady's bothering us, send her on her way. Or if they're saying, look, you've healed Gentile people before. You've cast out demons before. Go ahead and do your thing so she will be quiet and leave us alone. It's probably that one. Just leave us alone. And it was discouraging words to her. And Jesus' response was very discouraging. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. How did this play out? What we have to realize is the passage that we just came from. In uh, chapter 15, verse 2, it says, why do, you, why do the disciples break the traditions of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He's talking about tradition. And if you remember, they would go and they'd wash their hands a certain way down to the elbows. They'd kind of run off the wall. All this ceremonial stuff had nothing to do with clean hands. It had to do with something to be ceremonial clean so you could walk into the temple. Well, nothing was, more, was worse than touching a Gentile. If you touched a Gentile, you were too unclean to go into the temple. You had to get washed. And so you find the picture here, what Jesus is doing is not just teaching this lady a defining moment in her life, but just as important, a defining moment in the disciples' lives too. Maybe they weren't understanding what they just heard. Maybe they were conflicted because, I mean, after all, their tradition, how they were raised, <clears throat> what their mom and daddy taught them were suddenly running contrary to what Jesus was teaching, but yet they knew he was Lord. They knew by now that God's hand was all over him and they just couldn't figure it out. He said, let me give you an example. This lady has come up. He says, I've come to the house of Israel and you will find all throughout the Bible that he came first to present the gospel to the Jewish people and then later, particularly with Peter and more importantly, more, more so I should say with Paul, the apostle Paul, he became the missionary to the Gentiles. But Romans 1.16, Paul says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. But this fit into the uncleanness argument. He's just continuing the teaching to the next passage. But here we find this woman, you think to yourself, well, yeah, but she's being... Man, she's really being insulted, don't you think, Pastor? I mean, after all, God calling her a dog. And she recognized the fact that that is exactly what the Jews would call her. And so it wasn't surprising that Jesus would do it too. But without testing, dear friend, without the testing of her faith, how would she know she had great faith? Without the stretching of our faith, how would our faith grow in the Lord? The things that I learned, even through praying for my niece, led me to Christ. Those kind of things led me later in life at the age of 22, some six, seven years later, after that, to be healed of being a diabetic. One thing builds on, on another. The faith is tested. The Bible says without faith is impossible to please God. For he who, whoever draws near to God must believe that he exists and that he is rewarder of those who seek him. Well, what about that? What about that reward? What about coming to the end of the struggle? The end of the struggle where you cry out and help me, Lord, for my lost friend. Help me for, to heal 
my father, my grandfather, my mother, grandmother, my child. What about this? What about the victory at the end of the struggle? Well, let's look at it beginning again in verse 25. Backing up. For she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, there's a couple of different Greek words here for dog. One is the renegade dog that's uh, very dangerous, scavenger, that's out wild, that nobody owns. This is the word used for puppy. And these little dogs, pets, would be in the house, but the children would eat first, and then the crumbs or the leftovers would go to the dogs. I want you to notice, I want you to notice her response. First of all, I want you to notice her crying out to the Lord. Verse 25, Lord, help me. There's a desperate cry here. Now, most of us, and maybe in our church we're sort of like this, and we're like this, a lot of churches maybe you've been to, we're, we're dignified with our prayers. I prayed just a few moments ago for the children. I would call that a very dignified prayer. This lady did not know the definition of the word dignified, all right? She was shouting out to the Lord. She was crying out in desperation to the Lord. There's a special blessing, it would seem, for one reason, I don't know why, but for those who emotionally, desperately cry out to God. Psalm 18, in my distress, the psalmist says, I called upon the Lord to my God. I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice and my cry to him reached his ears. Jeremiah 33, 3, call unto me or cry out to me and I will answer you. And I will show you great and hidden things that you have not known. Psalm 55, evening and morning, the psalmist says, and at noon I will pray and cry aloud and he shall hear my voice. Is there something different? Don't you think there's something different between your child calling out, hey, I need a little help here, versus all of a sudden crying. What happens when they yell out and scream and cry? You run to their room. You run outside. You run to them because you know there's a desperation there. You know they really need your help. This is showing great humility before the Lord. In the Old Testament, when the Israelites were going into the promised land, he says, I've surely, surely, the Bible says, seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. That extra praying to God, maybe fasting, leaving off food, just crying out to God. Listen, you, you would not, as far as privately, I would probably not feel comfortable all the time with you seeing me pray. It gets kind of desperate. It gets kind of loud. It gets, even when I'm not yelling with my voice or anything like that, just crying out to God. There does seem to be a special blessing, a special answer to prayer when the blind, people like blind Bartimaeus in the New Testament yell out to God, Lord, help me, help me, cleanse me, heal me, help me walk again. The lepers crying out to Jesus, the blind calling out to Jesus. They're crying out, they're going, their voices are above the crowd. 
Like, I don't care who hears me, how embarrassing it may seem to everybody else. This is what I need. And what it does, it it expresses a deep humility. Look in verse 26. She said, Lord, help me. But then he says, I can't offer it and just throw it to the dogs. But then she says that she, let me tell you what she doesn't say. She doesn't say, well, well, God, Lord, I can't believe you call me a dog. You're just no different from the rest of the Jews. You're no different from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I'm not a dog. Hey, look, I've got a little self-respect here. Didn't say that at all. It's like maybe a person coming to know Christ. Well, God, I, I think that I'm a pretty good person, but I know that I need saving. I know I need a Savior. I know I need Jesus in my heart, but I'm, I'm still pretty good. I was raised in a Christian home. I lived the, a good life. I respect my parents. I'm a good dad, but I need a little bit of Jesus to get me over the hump for salvation. She could have said, well, Lord, I can almost do this. I've tried everything. I've gone to all these doctors. I've tried, I've tried, I've tried. And you ought to reward me for my trying. At least I do love my daughter. Nothing like that whatsoever. A total humility before the Lord. Look, Lord, I know I'm an outsider. I know I deserve nothing. But Lord, help me. Because there's still, to me, plenty of mercy on that table for people like me. There's plenty of grace If you just give me the crumbs off the table, there's plenty of grace even for me. When I, uh, I was praying for my niece, Um, I can remember like it was yesterday, I know where I was kneeling, I know exactly everything about it. I remember going to church enough because we were going to Sunday school every week and I remembered enough to know that I was in no position to pray to God. Not that I was a bad kid, I just knew I wasn't a believer. And you may be thinking to yourself, well, pastor, let's face it, that was somebody else's answer to prayer because God never answers the prayer of a lost person, an unbeliever. Okay, I, I, want, you to, I want to ask you, where do you get that in the Bible? See, some great evangelist or some great pastor once derived that from the Bible, it began to spread. It's the only thing I can figure. And I grew up believing that, that God never hears the prayer of a person that doesn't know the Lord. Well, it shows right here, this one, there's no way that you can do mental gymnastics, gymnastics with the Greek, the Hebrew, the original languages, whatever, Aramaic, whatever you want to do, tenses and, and, and put this, this lady in a position of being saved while she was praying this prayer. She was lost without Christ. Man, I thought somebody was turning around and looking at me. These things, I don't know how long they've been doing that, but cut that out. Now, <clears throat> kind of freaked me out a little bit seeing those things move around. Did y'all notice that? Okay, you know, I just want to know that you don't think I, I'm not crazy here. Um, but listen, I prayed. I prayed to the Lord and I was lost. Let me correct your theology. According to the Bible, there is no promise made to a person outside of Christ that would cause God any obligation, not that he's under obligation to the Christian, but really he's under obligation to to answer his promises and say yes to his promises, come through. But those promises are not to those who are outside of Christ. I was an outsider. But I was an outsider pleading for help. God hears everybody's prayer. 
but he's not under obligation to answer any prayer, but he's certainly not under obligation and usually does not happen when a person is outside of Christ. But here's a prayer that God needed to answer for me because it was one of the final ingredients to put me to a defining moment of receiving Jesus into my heart. And I believe the same for this woman as well. She was humble before the Lord, which brings the reward part. You must believe that God is and that he is rewarder of those who seek him. Where's the victory part? Look in verse 28. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. We see great faith. Great faith. I'd love to have that great faith. Not like Peter being of little faith or others that being of, of good faith. I'd love to have great faith. Mark eleven twenty four says this, Therefore, Jesus, as I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And this verse means believe that you have already received it. It's as good as in your hands and it will be yours. How bad do you want it? Wasn't that one of the tests this lady was going through? How Jesus looked at her, how bad do you want it? How bad? It's like blind Bartimaeus again. When he cried out and the disciples said, leave the master alone. The Bible says he cried the more. He cried more. How bad do you want it? Some of you have perhaps daughters and sons that are not following the Lord. You have someone in your family. How often? Do we even pray for them? How desperate do you find yourself being? The Bible says, or rather Martin Luther, and I quote him, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It is laying hold of his willingness. And whether I'm praying for my niece, bringing me to that defining moment of my life, or perhaps this morning, God has brought things in your life, maybe through vacation Bible school, maybe through commitments, commitment service Friday night where 10 adults Receive Christ. He's bringing you to a moment in life. Maybe this is it. Maybe this is it. I promised you a Father's Day story, so I'm going to close with this example. If I had one story to tell, dads, uh, this would be it. You can imagine, true story, a man standing in front of a men's group, business group, he has nice slacks on. He's got one of those um, polo shirts on, athletically built. And he stands up before the crowd, and he begins to tell his story. And he says, I can't say that I was an atheist. I just didn't have any use for church or church people, really. Just didn't really care. I'd send my wife and children to church, and it just gave me a time on Sunday morning just to get by myself, sit around in my pajamas and read the newspaper and watch the NFL today if they were late. Just a time to kick back and relax. But one Sunday, he tells a story, my daughter was still sitting on the floor with her pretty Sunday dress on. And she was watching a cartoon. She said, I wasn't interested in that. The newspaper was kind of boring by now. I put that in the newspaper and I said, um, honey, come on up here and sit in daddy's lap. She got up gleefully to do that, jumped in daddy's lap and he said, well, honey, what'd you, did you enjoy church today? And she said, yep. Well, he was expecting a little bit more elaborate answer than that. So he finally just said, well, what did you learn in Sunday school today? And she said, well, I, we, we talked about Jesus. 
He said, well, good, good. And we talked about where we wanted to go when we died. And he thought, wow, what a heavy subject matter for a preschooler. And uh, she said, Johnny said he wanted to go to heaven when he died. And Susie, my friend, you know Susie. Yes, yeah, honey, I do. And Well, she wanted to go to heaven when she died. She, he says, I knew I shouldn't ask her the question. I knew it. But I had to. It just came out. And he said, well, honey, what would you say? He said, Daddy, I told my teacher that I wanted to go wherever my daddy went. He said that he placed his daughter down and said, excuse me, honey, placed her down very gently on the floor, walked to his bedroom, locked the door, started crying, got down on his knees, and he gave his heart to Jesus Christ. A defining moment in his life when he realized when he realized as a dad, 75% of the time, by the way, a dad goes to church, takes his family. When the kids get older, they go too. It drops down to 15% when he doesn't, at different scenarios when he doesn't go. Sends his family. Children adopt the values of their parents about 60% of the time. So, wow, that's not much. It's pretty good. Because, see, his parents were influencers we're not dictators. We cannot dictate how they live. Nothing's guaranteed. But the best chance we have is to live before Jesus in such a way that they copy the top values. They won't copy anything down here. They don't care about that. What are the top one or two values of your life? Is it Jesus? Is it the Word of God? Is it growing in Christ? That's what they look to, not the rest. What about you today? What about you? Maybe your children just want to go wherever you go. And most of the time they do. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.